on a black-budget-filled episode of the hyper-anomalous esoteric research organization podcast, a.k.a. Hero Paranormal, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the anomalous ambassador of the airwaves, bringing you a remarkable episode today. And if you haven't gone over to heroparanormal.com, please do. For the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can access all the content behind the paywall. And if you're listening to this via YouTube, please help me out, like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. I've had a lot of people ask me why I have a Mars Attacks alien here at my office in the studio, and um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you why. My little one, uh, my boy, is horrified of the darn thing, especially the uh, animatronic version of it. When I plug it in, it starts moving around and spewing steam out of its gun and and it lights up and it freaks the heck out of him but um it's broadcasting an image and i'm realizing how important of an image it is broadcasting if you go back and google the trailer to mars attacks this was in 1996 you will see some of the strangest imagery I, i i i've watched the movie multiple times and even i forgot the imagery So um, towards the end of the trailer, there are various scenes where the aliens are wearing face coverings, face masks, unlike we had ever seen before, face masks exactly like we were made to wear in 2020. So here we have predictive programming of wearing face masks in public, and we have predictive programming of an alien invasion or potential early glimpse of Project Bluebeam. This is some of the most amazing work by cinemagicians yet when it comes to predictive programming. Mars Attacks is a 1996 American science fiction film which was directed by none other than Tim Burton. He also co-produced it with Larry J. Franco. Now the screenplay, which is the most important, is by a gentleman named Jonathan Gems. Now, if you're into numerology, 96, like 1996 or 1969, are very important, creative, and imaginative numbers. Now, the screenplay by Jonathan Gems was based on the Topps trading card series of the same name. We have the numerology of 96 or 69, which means you're interested in the occult or psychic phenomena, its creativity and energy potential. Occult numerology of 96, Illuminati card game-like trading cards, predictive programming of Contagion, and Project Bluebeam. Also, the number 96, or 69, is very important when developing your psychic abilities or when you're exploring the occult. This number can help you to open up your third eye and develop your intuition. 
Now, the significance of symbolism and coincidence of 96 and the number 69, or the crystals that help open the third eye and develop psychic abilities, don't end there. Hematite is associated with the number 96 or 69, and it is a grounding and stabilizing crystal that helps promote balance. 6996, yin and yang, sun, moon, light, darkness, very Baphomet-ish symbology here. And the occult symbolism has a very mineral element. And guess what you find on Mars? Hematite. And it may prove whether water ever flowed on its surface. Where water was, life may have had a chance to thrive as well. Hematite is made up of iron and oxygen, a type of iron oxide. It takes its name from the Greek word for blood. And it is a rusty color in powdered form, much like the surface of Mars, the red planet. Hematite is also worn as jewelry or gems. And speaking of gems, Jonathan Gems is literally a gem of a cinemagician. And the reason I say that is he is a British playwright, a screenwriter, mostly known for his work on the 1996 version of Mars Attacks. He wrote the film's novelization as well. Very good author. He's well known, and his work includes a screenplay for an adaptation of George Orwell's 1984. No other work ever may have as much predictive programming as George Orwell's 1984. So much that it's become a reality. 1984 is right now, and right now was 1984 the novel. The ultimate dystopian social science fiction novel by an English writer ever written, and another English writer doing the same. So how does such a gem of a playwright get all of this right? He's a cinemagician, of course. And the amazing thing is his mother was as well. He is the son of the playwright Pam Gems. Gems wrote a number of plays for theaters on the London Fringe before gradually turning to screenwriting. Gems did uncredited rewrite work on Batman in 1989, and Batman is another one of those films that has been attributed with a variety of predictive programming, which is essential to any conspiracy theorist. And what if I told you that Jonathan Gems had top-secret Area 51 information which comes into play in the actual formation of Mars attacks? Yeah, We'll get deeper into that later, but basically, got his hands on top-secret leak documents. I'm serious, not making it up. You can't even start to fathom how some of this information gets into the hands of cinemagicians, but it does. One way or another, they always seem to be able to get the inside scoop. It's amazing. And Gems wrote unproduced scripts for Tim Burton. I would do anything to get my hands on these. One of these scripts was known as Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, which was a Beetlejuice sequel. Maybe this just went a little too predictive, and who knows what was in that. Maybe Maui burns to the ground? I don't know. But I would do anything to see that. And he literally brought... Mars Attacks, and the project to life for Tim Burton. He also worked on some amazing plays. Among those, The Paranormalist, 
Susan's Breasts, Naked Robots, and The Tax Exile, all of which are on my must-watch list to anyone. Now, this guy is a genius, in my opinion. He's been involved with other works other than Mars Attacks, including White Mischief, The Treat, Van Morrison in Ireland. Quick shout-out. Van Morrison is one of my favorite musicians of all time. Talk about a guy with soul, but that's not the point of this, because he also was involved with Who Killed British Cinema, which was an examination of the current state of the alleged British film industry and its association with the UK government. So here we have extreme insight and knowledge into how the government and the film industry are associated with one another. And it's no different in the United States. Looking at our history, keep in mind that the UFO scenario became involved with movies and that the CIA became involved almost immediately upon its creation in movie making in 1947. That's right, the CIA was created in 1947, the same year, coincidentally, when we had the Roswell UFO incident in New Mexico. Now, the forebear to the CIA, which was known as the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, also assisted in the production of films. Among those films, some of them had interesting names, such as Cloak and Dagger. But the OSS couldn't hold a candle to what took place after 1947. The CIA became very involved, and U.S. intelligence had a huge hand in the production of many movies, music, art, and more. In fact, the CIA secretly funded the classic movie Animal Farm in 1954. And when it comes to how the CIA uses Hollywood, look no further than Richard Klein, a consultant who helped connect Hollywood studios with the CIA and other government agencies. How does Hollywood promote war on behalf of the Pentagon, CIA, and NSA? Well, these intelligence agencies have final cut, or last say, over some of the world's most popular film franchises, movies, TV shows, etc. documents have revealed. A quick list of CIA-funded movies include The Bourne Identity, Bridge of Spies, Body of Lies, Argo, Salt, The Bourne Ultimatum, Zero Dark Thirty, Jason Bourne, Munich, The Good Shepherd, Kill the Messenger, Safe House, The Recruit, American Assassin, The Bourne Supremacy, The Bourne Legacy, Enemy of the State, Sicario, The Report, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, Mission Impossible, Clear and Present Danger, Syriana, The November Man, and the list goes on and on. In fact, they have final cut on so many works, they have become known as the military entertainment complex by insiders. You follow these tendrils of information, and this gets deep. Jonathan Gems is amazing, and as far as a cinemagician and screenwriter, well, he nails it. Now, he does have an amazing Mars Attacks memoirs, which goes into detail about a lot of the information with Mars Attacks, and I'll tell you just a little bit about that. Screenwriter Jonathan Gems has finally released The Martian Commander to share his memories and the inner secrets of the movie. He has confidential documents that have been leaked directly from Area 51, and it's all here. 
studio politics, Hollywood stars, fun, laughter, friendship, mayhem, and the genius of the extraterrestrial Tim Burton. Now, keep in mind that this was the year 1996. And nowadays, it's pretty easy to, you know, hire out a marketing campaign. But in 1996, when Mars Attacks came out, this was unheard of to do what was done. They basically got all of the biggest names they could get to be in the movie. And they had over 20 leading roles. This was unheard of at the time, but what a way to drum up marketing, drum up a frenzy for people to see the movie. And it may sound absolutely maddening. However, it was reality. The cinematic landscape was different then. CGI wasn't really a thing. Yet, this film brought it to the forefront. Might sound like crazy fantasy at the time, but it was the reality of the modern cinematic landscape, and it was brought in through Mars Attacks. This technology was still very limited, and uh, it only appeared in movies by Steven Spielberg or James Cameron, but those are a couple of other wacky, wild, and weird cinemagicians with their own involvement in predictive programming, which we will have to leave for other podcasts. Let's concentrate and focus at the wildness at hand with these wacky Martian invaders who are quite literally destroying Earth and killing humans in new and exciting ways. Mars attacks, in particular began popularizing the idea that digital wizardry could do just about anything, and did, with weird, wild-looking alien invaders who kept coming up with different ways to kill humanity. The aliens were done with the help of CGI animation. This was done on the forefront of cutting-edge technology in 1996. Now, keep in mind that before Mars Attacks, another movie hit theaters, and it was known as Independence Day. I mean, heck, that movie could have its own podcast in as much as that film focuses on desperate groups of people who converge in the Nevada desert in the aftermath of an extraterrestrial worldwide attack. The release of these two movies in such close proximity to one another was not a coincidence. Not only was it trying to beat Mars attacks to market, but there was a very obvious broadcasting of this Project Bluebeam scenario of alien invasion. There was something in the air. There was a message getting across. It seemed there was a joint project utilizing two movie houses and the most powerful CGI technologies to spread simulation images establishing total control over humans by extraterrestrials in cinematic form. Sounds like Blue Beam to me. Now, Mars Attacks was one of the seven movies shortlisted for nomination in the Best Visual Effects categories for that year, the occult, numerology, and symbolism significant with this movie rears its ugly head. 
and not just the ugly head of an alien with exposed brains who is in an astronaut helmet. Not at all. I'm talking about deep symbolism, occult numerology, and significance. Bilaterally. And keep in mind that this was the year of the 69th Academy Awards. Back with that number, 69, and it was released in 96. Critics said the exposed alien brains of the extraterrestrials was just a little too creepy for audience goers, and that the movie's trading card origin was just a little too strange. But this all pales in comparison of the numerology, the 69th Academy Awards, in 96, seemingly predicting future events, the need to wear masks in public, mass mind control tools to make moviegoers more accepting of planned future events, planned societal events to be implemented by our leaders, and possibly the most accurate predictive programming of all, their depiction of politicians being utterly inept in the face of global catastrophe. During the movie Mars Attacks, the president is utterly worthless. The military acts exactly the way you would expect, and humans are quite literally without a chance against these adversaries. And talk about predictive programming. This isn't the first time that predictive programming has been extremely accurate. It's a thing. Nine years before the emergence of the outbreak of 2020, similar situations were depicted in the movie Contagion, which was released in the year 2011. In the words of Alan Watt, and I quote, a subtle form of psychological conditioning provided by the media to acquaint the public with planned societal changes to be implemented by our leaders. If and when these changes are put through, the public will already be familiarized with them and will accept them as natural progressions, thus lessening possible public resistance and commotion. Makes sense, right? If you are psychologically conditioned to do a certain thing, when it happens, you're less likely to throw your arms up in the air in complete distress because you already know how this plays out. You know how this goes. And there is the argument. Is it life that imitates art or art that imitates life? Very difficult question, kind of that what came first, the chicken or the egg. I'll be honest, I really like to study things. And among the various useless college degrees, well, they're not useless because they make me appreciate a lot of things in our world. So I have a hotel management degree and graduate level certification in conflict resolution and mediation. For the sake of this podcast, I have a communications major with a degree in public relations, and my most fascinating area of study was the hypodermic needle theory. This theory absolutely knocks it out of the park when it comes to predictive programming, and whether life imitates art or art imitates life. Some may also know it as the magic bullet theory, as it is called in more modern times. Yeah, they got rid of that word hypodermic needle for some reason. Maybe it was just too close, too soon, too obvious. 
for a variety of reasons, I could see why hypodermic needle theory could be misconstrued into involving plans, government plans, and probably not the best scenarios. Regardless, I'm older, and when I learned it, it was called the hypodermic needle theory. So I'm going to roll with that. Now keep in mind that I think that's a really good description, because let's look at what a hypodermic needle is. It's a tool to quite literally inject something into somebody. Now, this theory was developed in the 1920s and 1930s, so that'll give you an idea how long people have been aware of this. And by people, I of course mean the right people. The ones who have the ability to inject information into a passive audience. So the overall theory here is how the mass media influences passive audiences. Now, one of the main contributing factors to the hypodermic needle theory and why it was developed in the 20s and 30s are two main reasons. One, there was the Orson Welles War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Orson Welles had performed a radio version of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. He more or less turned the 40-year-old novel into news bulletins describing a Martian invasion of New Jersey. Mars attacks again. Some listeners took those bulletins for the real thing. It's rumored some people jumped to their deaths, others did atrocious things, and basically they believed we were under Martian attack. It got serious and went to court. And in a 1960 court deposition as part of a lawsuit suing CBS, Wells offered an explanation. He said, and I quote, I had conceived the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening and would be broadcast in such a dramatized form as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time rather than a mere radio play. Well, I'll tell you, it worked. The War of the Worlds story was amazing. The invaders easily defeated army personnel. The British, to be exact, with advanced weaponry. They had heat ray guns and poisonous black smoke. Not the British. Oh my gosh, it seemed that the world's most powerful colonizer was now being colonized by Martians. Oh no, however would we stop them? It seemed hopeless. But fast forward to correlations with the movie Mars Attacks that we're discussing today, they share many of the same plot twists and traits. The aliens succumbed to diseases, contagion, sickness, Oh no, immunity. They had none. It was a Martian pandemic against which they had no immunity. Face masks, anyone? As if simple face masks could do the trick, right? We all know better. Everyone who heard the radio play agreed that this stripped-down production with no music and only the most basic 
sound effects was not that impressive. However, it was impressive enough. Impressive enough to cause nationwide chaos. Absolute chaos. With those who heard glimpses, parts, snippets, or even, at times, the whole thing. Unless you heard the introduction and knew what was coming, really and truly, this would seem as an official radio broadcast and somebody could mistake it for actual news. Here the term fake news rears its ugly head long before Donald Trump would ever say it. So let's have a quick listen to a snippet of that original Orson Welles War of the World radio broadcast of 1938 and see if we might consider this reality as well. There's not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. No lie, they go on for like five minutes worth of this music from the orchestra, and then there is an interruption. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Here we go again, like five minutes of nonstop music, people clapping at the end of it, and then another round of music, and then an interruption again. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. The professor at Princeton, or the purported professor at Princeton, hums and haws, answers a bunch of questions. He's supposedly looking at things through his uh, telescope, and the following happens. There is a major seismological event, and this event is in New Jersey. Apparently something lands in a farm, they go back to music, the music goes for a while, then there's an interruption again, they're out investigating this thing, they talk to the ranch owner or the farm owner, they really don't pay much attention to what he's saying, but he's trying to tell the people that Martians are here. They kind of ignore him, they go back, it goes back and forth a few times, you get the idea. And uh, takes forever. I mean, forever. And then finally, it's happening. More, more 
news interruptions explaining how the Martians are here and they are attacking worldwide. So pretty spooky stuff. I don't know if I was, you know, as slow rolling as radio was back then. I mean, you could be engaged for hours and barely be getting into this. So yeah, you could actually just listen in and catch a portion of this and it would sound like legitimate news or fake news. Now, the hypodermic needle theory is what they call a linear communication theory, which basically just means that the flow is linear. This information is injected directly into the minds of a passive audience. I kind of had to dust off the old mass communication books to get some of this info, but it's still in there. It's hardwired, and I still remember a lot of it. So basically, the gist is you inject this information into a passive audience. There's no difference between the people involved, and they assimilate the information into their consciousness, into their psyche, and you wait for the reaction. It's also pretty important that they try to no longer accept this important theory or this information about the hypodermic needle and how you can just inject stuff into people's brains and wait to see what the outcome is. Many research analysts and theorizers believe that the mass media has a very long-reaching and powerful effect. And although a lot of naysayers, fact checkers, and for all intents and purposes, debunkers try to negate much of this theorization, the reality is this is why we don't place our toddlers in front of R-rated movies and expect no damage to be done. There is a very real scenario here. And that scenario is that predictive programming can take place. American political scientist Howard Latswell, back in 1927, knew that this was true. He published and outlined this in his book, Propaganda Technique in the World War. He was a communication theorist, and his amazing book proposes a general theory of the strategy and tactics of propaganda. Basically, he argues that a stream of influence runs from control to content, and from content to audience. And Laswell was particularly interested in the examination of effects that the media has in creating public opinion within a democratic system. Laswell went on to write, and I quote, from a propaganda point of view, it was a matchless performance for Wilson brewed the subtle poison which industrious men injected into the veins of a staggering people until the smashing powers of the Allied armies knocked them into submission. Pretty strong words, but this categorically imposes the thought process, theory, and belief that you can quite literally inject ideas into the minds of people and expect a reaction. Studies went on to prove that children who watched things on TV would, in fact, mimic these exact actions in real life. This could explain some of the mass hysteria that took place during Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. It's war. <laughs> kind of kind of makes sense. I mean, if 
this is what you believe, what you hear, and the medium is the message, and you're used to hearing radio. That's the medium. And the message is that we're being attacked by Martians. Why not believe it? The talking box is telling you so. And the talking box is where you get your information. I know it sounds simplistic, but has anything really changed? We hear broadcasts on TV, and what do we do? We believe them. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay safe. And aliens in the movie Mars Attacks are wearing masks. I hope they wash their hands. Also, the media can convince you that people are criminals, or that people are successful, or that people are absolutely epic at something that they really aren't. I can think of a ton of examples. Uh, For one, that people are really good at what they do. Epstein, until we realized what and who he really was, which we still don't know. I believe he was a construct by the intelligence community personally. But before then, he was the ultimate billionaire playboy. Or uh, let's take um, social media influencer Douglas Mackey, who they're trying to put away for 10 years because he posted a meme. He posted a meme that said, if you want to vote for Hillary, click here, text this number. And people did it. I mean, come on. Obviously, he shouldn't have done that. He should be accountable in some way, shape, or form. But does the Department of Justice really have to hand out a term of 10 years for posting a meme? Now, if you look at the mass media, it will show that it's election interference or uh, convicted of voter suppression schemes. And things can be verbalized in a way through the media where it appears much worse than it really was. Uh, So we have the example of Epstein. We have the example of Douglas Mackey. Or um, other examples. For example, there are some celebrities who appear quite nice in front of the camera, but you realize when the camera's off, they're absolute a-holes. I won't go into names, but there are those as well. Basically, people believe what they see. And not only do they believe what they see, they believe what they see first. So, if someone comes out with information about somebody that is real mudslinging information, it's hard to clean that up. The first one to the party seems to be the one that gets the red carpet rolled out, and the majority of people's minds agree with whatever they're fed first. Whatever the mass media spoon-feeds them first is what they believe. Interestingly, sometimes this stuff falls right on its face. And when it does, it's epic. I believe it's epic. People don't know what to do. When they really encounter fake news, they don't know what to do. They're in a state of shock. They go catatonic. And that's because there is something to the magic bullet theory, a.k.a. the hypodermic needle theory, when it comes to the mass media. Now, what is very true about these cinemagicians is that they have layers to their magic. 
I used to be on the fence about whether or not there was anything to this esoteric belief system that Hollywood is what it is and is named what it is for particular reasons esoterically. Hollywood, the wood of the holly, which was used to make wands to cast spells in ancient, mystic, pagan, magical situations. And this is how you cast a spell. Well, how do you make a movie? First, you get the cast, the individuals who will help cast the movie. Then you have the screenplay, which is basically spelled out. The spell is in the screenplay. These all take place in Hollywood, utilizing the area which is most like the magic wand, the wood of the holly, because the magic wand allows you to access everything you need with one fell swoop, waving the wand. And there are three levels or three sides of this, much as there are three degrees in Freemasonry for the most part, or three sides of a triangle, the strongest structure. And exactly why, if you divide something into thirds, like the Holy Trinity, you get 33. 33% for each of the sides of the triangle. And of course, possibly the most telling, what's left but the 1%. I better tap the brakes or I'm going to go off the rails onto a whole other podcast. But back to the secret of threes. There's the forward-facing, there's the behind-the-scenes, and then there's the esoteric. And this is true for all highly qualified, highly adept, and creative cinemagicians. This is how Hollywood creates magic. In other words, there is what's going on in front of the screen or ahead of the scene. There is what's going on behind the scenes. And then there is the esoteric component to it all. By that I mean forward-facing, you may have a movie like the Bourne Ultimatum. Behind the scenes, you find out that it is funded by the CIA. And then there is the esoteric component of what message they are trying to get across because the medium is the message. The flow of information is what they are trying to inject through the screen into the passive audience. It's fascinating. There's more. There's always a story behind the story and a story behind that. And this uh, reminds me of the Bible of all things, but it's the same with all ancient religious works. Biblically, people always asked why Jesus spoke in parables. A lot of information that I've been looking at, looking at the books of the masters and a lot of hard-bound, hard-to-find, incredibly old books, what I'm finding is that all the parables that Jesus spoke, there's a reason. It's a codex. There's a reason he spoke in parables, or a reason it is what it is, because on average, there were seven layers to everything he spoke. So initially, he would say something like, You will deny three times that you know me. Therefore, when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him thrice times before the cock crowed twice, sure, on surface level, he is telling the future, telling him that the next morning before the cock crowed twice, 
this would in fact happen. But then go down a layer. Was it actually a command? Was he saying, you will deny me? And then there are five more layers of meaning even below that. That is the way codex works and why parables are so effective if spoken correctly. And keep in mind that when he said this, it seemed kind of out of place. And then Peter, at the time, in the moment where it happened, then the words he had spoken came to him. And I'm just using the Bible because it's something everybody knows. Everybody's read. People are familiar with the sayings. I'm just not pulling parables out of thin air. It's something people can open up a book and see and then realize that there are important layers or levels or different symbologies and significant interpretations to these things as you dig and go more esoterically into them. And these are likely to be understood by only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest. In any type of work, there is shop talk. And I remember when I was a fly fishing guide, I could have a conversation with another guide right in front of clients And there's a way we could pre-sort our words and decide what to say talking amongst one another where they had no idea what we were saying. Yet we're all sharing the same airwaves, all sharing the same space, and there is an esoteric language being spoken with layers and layers that only those with the shop talk understand. The same is true with cinemagicians. Filling a film with hidden meanings and symbolism, which requires a closer look to fully appreciate, is seen as an epic ability. And when it comes to Mars attacks and the red planet Mars in general, red is often times symbolized with the technology and machines that dominate. While blue, for example, represents the natural world, such as oceans and the sky. And when it comes to Mars attacks and the brain-exposed aliens wearing masks, masks that literally look like the masks which all civilians were pretty much mandated to wear in 2020, masks are a way of taking the different roles that people play in everyday lives and giving those who are wearing them the freedom to somewhat explore without judgment or repercussion, much like the movies Eyes Wide Shut and how the people in that film all wore masks. All the characters in the orgy scenes and the special Rothschild mansion party scenes were wearing masks as a way for them to explore their desires without any repercussions. In fact, when masks are removed, these individuals have to confront them, their true natures, and deal with consequences. And there's no joke about the reality that the movie Eyes Wide Shut was Stanley Kubrick's last movie, as if he emphasized the reality of what is taking place in one final exclamation point of a film. His magnum opus, 
his deathbed confession. Not to pick on Stanley Kubrick, but he's a perfect example of an artist, an adept cinemagician. He began his career with 2001, A Space Odyssey, of what is possible, what could be, and finished his career with Eyes Wide Shut and What Is. Cinemagician's ability to convey complex ideas with a medium that is readily available to the masses and can be seen and witnessed in different ways and different perspectives by different individuals at different education levels with different abilities is a testament to the talent that filmmakers have. But there is that coincidence, that synchronicity, that possible factor where it seems as if some films tell the future or even the present or have the ability to predictively program people into at least ascertaining that what they are seeing is what they were conditioned to see. But sometimes multiple mediums become the message. In 1996, not only the film industry releasing Independence Day and Mars Attacks, but also the news agencies seem to be on the same synchronistic, coincidental wavelength. Because as Mars Attacks and Independence Day both had extraterrestrial craft aggressively flying around in the skies of their silver screen productions, the Uinta Basin of Utah had a news report done on it. 96 was a big year. Go figure. It is the first time anyone heard of a Utah UFO ranch in the Uinta Basin of Utah. Zach Van Eyck, a staff writer for the Deseret News, wrote a remarkable piece known as Frequent Flyers. Zach interviewed Joseph Jr. Hicks, and when questions got a little complicated, Jr. finally said, I think you better talk to Gwen down at the bank. He interviewed the Shermans, their teenage son and 10-year-old daughter. They had seen three specific types of UFOs repeatedly during the past 15 months. They've seen them all close up. And they'd seen other airborne lights. They had videotaped some of the sightings. They had had mystery circles on the property. And they had linked the sightings with the death, mauling, or disappearance of seven of their cows. At least at that point. A key quote from Zach's investigation goes as such when he questioned rancher Terry Sherman. You talk to a lot of people around here, Terry Sherman said, that at one time or another have seen something they can't explain. There's been a lot of cattle mutilations, and a lot of them weren't reported. Several ranchers told me that when they had a mutilation, they called the authorities, and the authorities couldn't do anything. So, it was just a waste of time and effort. Junior Hicks also knew about the Sherman sightings, and he believed they were extraordinary for their number, duration, and quality. He said, and I quote, I'd estimate over 10% of the population of the Uinta Basin has seen something. I think what's happening is we are being visited from beings from another world or some other place. 
I think primarily, it's research and exploration. Bless his heart and rest in peace. I miss Junior Hicks very much. Ryan Layton, a Davis County researcher, has interviewed more than two dozen Utahns at this point. Most, if not all, had had experiences similar to the Shermans. And Ryan Layton was the first researcher on site in the Uinta Basin on the ranch talking to Terry Sherman. Interviewing Terry Sherman, he found out that there was at least seven craft sightings where they saw entities or creatures, biological in nature or at least in appearance, either through portals into the craft or stepping outside of the craft or wandering around on the ground. Well, if there are seven layers to speaking in parables, there apparently were seven sightings with entities which could not be human beings. Visual parables seem to exist as well. In the months to follow, the Shermans saw a bunch of different flying objects, including more than a dozen in one evening. This may sound surreal, but I own a property which shares a fence line with this particular ranch. My property is called Space Wolf Research, and I can attest that this scenario is very possible. But let's rewind the tape back. It's 1996. This was the first time that UFOs, cattle mutilations, and wild stories of cryptozoological creatures came from this ranch and area in the Uinta Basin of Utah. Some claim that Terry just wanted to sell the ranch to whoever came by first with the money. This was not the case. He had been approached by a family who wanted to buy the place. He didn't feel good about that. And had been approached by a hunting club who wanted to buy the place. He thought that could lead to trouble too. So he stuck it out until he heard from Robert Bigelow, who had a better plan. Terry Sherman said the mutilators didn't just take any cows. They took the best ones. And he said, I quote, I've got a neighbor over here who's reluctant to talk about it, but he told me they've had trouble since he was a small kid and he's probably 55. Terry said, he told me, people will think you're crazy, but you're not. If you are, then we both have the same problem. Shortly after this article hit the mainstream newspaper, tycoon billionaire Robert Bigelow became aware of the importance of this area of the state. Before the Shermans bought it, it belonged to the same family since the 1930s, and it had sat for seven years, abandoned. In that respect, it's very similar to the property I purchased, Space Wolf Research, which also sat abandoned. Maybe there's a good reason for those abandonments. Terry and his family, after surviving an onslaught of phenomena for two years, was contacted by Robert Bigelow, who wanted to purchase the ranch, and secure Terry Sherman as a consultant. He went on to study the ranch with the best researchers money could buy, and funded NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. He later became involved in black-budget Pentagon projects known as ATIP and OSAP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program. 
it was during these times that I had my first experiences out in the area, in the same location. And I was unaware that I was quite literally trespassing onto black budget Pentagon projects nightly without any idea of what I was getting myself into. I was just a young kid trying to see some cool stuff. I saw many things I could not explain. Many of them, I'm sure, are not of this world. Others, it seems, may have been. Pretty soon, documents acquired by a variety of researchers, public records, and FOIA requests have revealed a lot about these secret government programs. ATIP made waves in 2020. One document entitled Invisibility Cloaking, Theory, and Experiments explores transparency, cloaking, and camouflage, and honestly discusses technological challenges to make a practical invisibility cloak. So there it is. They were likely testing that out there. In the DIA info memo, it says the following. This info memo responds to your request for the redacted to review the quality and value of the first-year technical reports delivered under the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Contract with Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. As a reminder, you made this request to redacted personnel during a 15th of May 2009 meeting with you after your meeting with Senator Harry Reid. The goal of the contract is to identify key technologies and physics concepts that would support revolutionary aerospace vehicle research and development. Contracted studies were designed to provide a prioritized list of technologies, concepts that then would drive detailed focused searches into foreign aerospace research and development. Each research report in the areas of lift, propulsion, control, power generation, spatial temporal translation, materials, structural configuration, signature reduction, human interface, human effects, and armament was written by world-class technical experts in the industry and or academia. There's a lot more, but for my purpose and the purposes of this podcast, I think it's important to note that's a lot of stuff for me as a young kid to be traipsing all around, being involved in, on the same property as this is taking place, and experiencing extreme life-changing paranormal events in close proximity to Pentagon black budget projects, experimenting with exotic technologies, including... Invisibility cloaks, lift, propulsion, control, power generation, spatial temporal translation, materials, structural configuration, signature reduction, human interface, human effects, and armament. I mean, damn. And people wonder the reason why I'm interested in this stuff? Give me a break. Yeah, of course I'm interested in this stuff. In my opinion, what really makes this area of the planet unique is that you get it all. You get interdimensional activity, UFOs, cryptozoological variants, government involvement, poltergeist activity, ghosts, portal activity, orbs, 
cattle mutilations, a precognitive sentient intelligence, and of course, the motherlode, the unholy grail, the legend of the shapeshifter known as the skinwalker. It's all there. Add transient radiation and electromagnetic frequency spikes to the geography, and you've got a smorgasbord of dimensionality, a paranormal Disneyland of sorts. We even had other DIA and Department of Defense facilities involved with the research taking place in this location. And I go back to some of the documentation and some of the paperwork that I've acquired, and it reads, Five were performed by outside reviewers, including three research staff members at Sandia National Laboratories. The Redacted Program Manager. Redacted has reviewed all of the papers and concurs with the reviews. As the excerpts indicate, all of the reviews were positive, some exceptionally so. Even within the limitation of being able to conduct only unclassified research in the first contract year, the quality hoped for in the reports was achieved. Redacted intends to publish them in coming weeks as defense intelligence studies. Some, or all, of these studies may be of interest to defense department agencies, national laboratories, and or defense industries focused on blue force capability development. So I said to myself, hold the phone. What is blue force? Well, it turns out, objectively speaking, blue force, readiness and capability is comprised of air, space, and cyberspace assets. It's also important to mention there is a company known as Blue Force Technologies, which makes Fury, a Group 5 Autonomous Air Vehicle, or AAV, quite literally a mini-triangle that the DoD will need to rely on in large quantities, smaller, lower cost, more autonomous, with scientifically advanced propulsion. Another report discusses negative mass propulsion and the possibility of harnessing wells of negative mass for space travel. It also mentions that it just happens to be that the center of the moon is a potential well. Well, that's good to know. I've always liked the moon. Making a tunnel through the moon provided there is a good supply of negative mass could revolutionize interstellar space flight. Hooah, now we're cooking with gas. Instead of Mars attacks, maybe Mars or other planets should be worried about us attacking them. Utilizing some of the advanced concepts, experimentation, quote-unquote toys, and exotic technologies experimented with in this area, the 2008 Defense Supplemental Appropriation Act included $10 million for ATIP, and the 2010 Defense Appropriations Act allotted $12 million, amounting to $22 million over five years. These are just the black budget projects we know of. Speaking hypothetically, so there you have it. Testing invisibility cloaks and advanced propulsion in a rural area of Utah. Maybe truth is stranger than fiction. But it seems they all share, at least in 1996, the same year. Funny how things tie together, being announced to the public. As we often find with these secret projects, black budget programs, 
secret machines, and Hollywood magic, it all comes together. Maybe movies like Independence Day and Mars Attacks planted the seeds so that our government could prepare in case anything like this ever did happen. Especially when, during the same year, mainstream news outlets were reporting on very similar events as purported in these movies happening in rural places in Utah. Let's keep it steady, on track, and not go off the deep end here. So did the movie Mars Attacks single-handedly prepare people for wearing masks and getting ready for Project Bluebeam or a potential alien invasion? Can't say that 100%, of course. But with the help of Independence Day the same year and the Deseret News article letting the world know about the Uinta Basin of Utah and the old Sherman Ranch, there sure was a lot going on in 96. True to its esoteric numerology, maybe we will never know if the hypodermic needle theory, predictive programming, and the media's ability to actually change, predict, or have an effect on the future is as relevant as some conspiracy theorists believe. But I know one thing, there is definitely a lot of synchronicity, coincidence, and effect, which is easy to measure. And if you haven't been over to HeroParanormal.com, please head on over there. For the price of a boutique cup of coffee a month, you can not only support my channel, but gain access to all the content behind the paywall, and there's a ton of it. You can also access that through Patreon. Just search for Hero Paranormal. And if you're listening to this via YouTube, please, please, please do me a big solid. Do me the favor of liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast, as this will help me battle the demon Al Ghul. We've all heard of Al Ghul and the rhythm he has. The algorithm. Help me break through the algorithm of control. The shadow ban is real. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evizine, blast off. Blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like a knee. I seen blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off.